0: a podcast research matters education for our planet and for our future climate change is arguably the most pressing educational imperative of modern times yet in our universities and communities it remains relatively under discussed This series attempts to redress that balance, featuring contributions from across and beyond the field of education that address how pupils, educators and educational researchers are currently responding and should respond to our climate crisis. Hello and welcome to the Bureau Podcast. My name's Kevin Smith. I'm a senior lecturer in education at Cardiff University, and I'm also a member of Bureau Council representing Bureau members in Wales. And today I'm speaking with a colleague of mine, Dr. Brian Barrents, a lecturer at Cardiff University. Bordarien, croeso Ir Padread.
1: Boradar Kevin, Jochen Barum Thanks for inviting
0: me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about you and your work
1: yeah sure so um, i'm currently a lecturer at cardiff university uh, where i teach on childhood and education modules i did my phd at the center for children's rights at queen's university belfast so i did my phd uh, with Jeanette elwood and laura lundy and it was uh, looking at assessment and qualifications from a children's rights perspective So based on the idea that assessment and qualifications have a huge role in shaping children's educational experiences as well as their future prospects, but they're very rarely meaningfully involved in decisions either at a school or national level around qualifications.
0: If I remember correctly, you recently published about some of the work that you did from your PhD, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I had an article uh, very recently in Verge, in the British Educational Research Journal, um, based on some data from my PhD and also from a research project that I was involved in. For the last three years, I worked for WIZARD at Cardiff University, the Wales Institute of Social Economic Research. And I was part of the wizard education multi-cohort study that asked children about their lives and experiences through surveys every year. The paper looked at used data from that study and from my doctoral study, which was a mixed method study uh, looking at students' views and experiences of GCSEs in Northern Ireland and Wales, because my PhD was at Queen's University Belfast. So it looked at whether tiering fulfills the rights to education, best interests, non-discrimination and participation under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it found that while the majority of students were supportive of um, tiering, there were also problems in terms of non-discrimination in terms of equal access to the curriculum because of the different uh, curriculum associated with the foundation tier and the higher tier, um, which was seen to be really problematic in terms of the right to education in particular, um, because students, if you're in the foundation tier, then there's no way that, you, that you're not learning the full curriculum. There's no way that you can progress because you don't have access to the higher tier content. And also in terms of the right to participation, in terms of the extent to which students were able to make decisions about being put into um, different tiers. And we found from the wizard education study that students quite often weren't aware of what the grade boundaries were on tiers even. So it meant that it was so the right to participation is facilitated by the right to information and to guidance from adults. And we found that they weren't having those rights fulfilled.
0: It's a tricky situation because a lot of times schools will acknowledge those, but have difficulty addressing them in meaningful and kind of concrete ways. Um, but sometimes, unfortunately, too, we don't see them filtering down to to school level at all, at all. And so, I think it's it's one thing that we could probably do better as as an academic community and being community members with our schools is drawing more attention to the UNCRC.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really important. and when, One of the rights in the convention is the right to know about the convention and the rights of the child. So children, and it's important that teachers as well, and all kind of members of staff and academics, that everybody in society is aware of the convention. Um, because if yeah. we're not aware of it, then we're just not going to be fulfilling it.
0: And I do, I do visit quite a few schools here in, in, in Wales. And I, and I love when you can walk down the corridors and you see, I've seen some primary schools even posting the rights of the child that are appropriate for school. That, and I think that's, that's great, you know, that they're doing that. But you wonder just how much further can we support, you know, making sure young people, young children understand their rights and can and engage with their rights. It seems like it's been a continuous theme in your work and in your academic profile. So why, why the focus on young people's rights? What draws you to that?
1: I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, if we look at kind of discourse around the youth climate strikes a lot, there were a lot of opinion pieces that were was- kind of giving people's opinions about whether or not students should be participating based on personal preferences but what we very rarely see is an acknowledgement that children are rights holders um, and we very rarely see children conceptualized in that way Um, Mm. and it's really important that we do discuss children in that way because rights are entitlements they're not optional and it changes the way that we see the state as well so it means that we don't just provide students we don't just see students and children as kind of vulnerable beings and we can decide what they need to make their lives better and um, we see them as kind of active participants with civil and political rights mm-hmm. um, and I think even within the children's rights discourse um, and Aoife Daly from the University of um, Liverpool makes this point really well in her article on the right to peaceful assembly is that we very rarely see children talked about in terms of their civil and political rights so even when we talk about rights there's a lot of focus on rights in terms of right to life, survival, and development, even right to education, but there's very little in which we actually acknowledge um, children as having civil and political rights, which is why I think these these kind of strikes are taking people by surprise. And it's quite clear that there's very little understanding of children as having civil and political rights from the discourse surrounding the climate strikes.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It reminds me of an article, a really popular article, The Being and Becoming, um, which really emphasizes the fact that, you know, young people are, are both human beings with rights and also, well, we all are human beings with rights and we're all in stages of becoming at the same time. And I think this idea then that extending traditionally, it seems some approaches looking at young people only see them as becoming. They're, they're not really fully fledged individuals or, 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 like you said, possessors of rights.
1: No, that's ab- absolutely right. And I think, you know, with education, generally, we think about education as producing particular kind of citizens, possibly kind of, in lot there's a lot of discourse that sees kind of ed- purpose of education in terms of producing economically useful citizens. And there's very little discourse that kind of looks at children as, you know, childhood being important in its own right, and children their their educational experiences and their experiences as children as they are rather than in the future are equally important and they have the right to that as well I think so yeah. a lot of what your work has been on that as well Kevin obviously.
0: Yeah, my, my experience as a teacher was a little frustrating at, at times because when I was given curriculum materials and because we were doing standards-based approaches to curriculum back in the day, and um, I was a little frustrated because the standards that they put out and the methods that they were encouraging us to use and and just our, our general approach, our pedagogical approach to, to the young people in our classroom, it, it just felt like it was just a series of instances of arrested development. We were constantly saying, if you're working in primary school so that you could get to secondary school and secondary school would lead to college and college would lead to university and university would lead to, and it was almost always a job, but it was the thing that struck me the most was that in these situations when we're engaging with young people and and their educational experiences, it was never enough to say, this is okay now, like we're learning this for now. And what does it mean for you in your life in this current instance or in other dimensions? But now it was always about, well, this is for the future, this is for the future. Yeah. And that I was really frustrated by that as a teacher, which I I guess is why I, I always kind of just <laughs> chucked that guidance. I kept you know the standards said, I'll make sure I do my job and I'm gonna do it the way I want to do it, you know. Now in the blog you mentioned that there were previous incidents where students had gone on strike but those events didn't receive the kind of press and scrutiny that was associated with with the climate crisis strikes so why do, why do you think that was the case why do you think that these the most recent strikes generated so much interest compared to the previous examples
1: yeah. So the the yeah. So as you say, there are examples of strikes that have happened like across history. So across things like uh, corporal punishment, the Iraq War, uh, EMA cuts, uh, educational maintenance allowance cuts, for example. Uh, but there seems to be something different about these strikes. Sarah Pickard at uh, University of Sorbonne has done some interesting work on this, and about why these strikes in particular are different so part of it is to do with the scale of the strike so they're internationally organized they're not kind of individual strikes and what she's she points to is the role of technology so because of um, the internet and new new technologies groups are able to connect with each other nationally and internationally share resources and this is really borne out if you look at the um uk climate strike network website for example they've got incredible resources you've got we've got webinars you've got ability to have kind of shared there's information on um kind of legal guidance there's ideas for lesson plans for teachers it's kind of it's very kind of professionalized um, and they're able Mm. to share expertise um across across nations kind of internationally and i think that's been part of why these strikes have been particularly uh, important and i think it's really important actually that we acknowledge that there has been great activism happening in the global south as well, um, that hasn't yeah. had the same attention as the um the most recent strikes led by, led by uh, Greta Thunberg, Saratima Pandi in India, for example, at nine years old in 2017, filed a lawsuit against the Indian government for failing to take action on the climate change. So I think there has been a lot of activism happening across the world, and these strikes have really kind of taken off and they've kind of started a global narrative. I think there was something kind of about the kind of media response to Greta Thunberg, Um, and she's a very powerful uh, media speaker, and there is something about the technologies uh, and the ability to organise internationally, I think, that um, has made these really powerful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the Global South because when I was at the University of the South Pacific, the schools there were already addressing changes in sea level and the the impact of global warming and their abilities to fish and and get other resources and stuff and you know so we we were seeing Curricula in Tuvalu and Kiribati and Fiji and Tonga were all already addressing these things and had been doing so for years. There's been a lot of yeah. concern over this in the global South that just hasn't saturated or, or, or crossed over into the, you know, the northern uh, nations. But now, with having, I think you know, obviously the technology understanding a, a sense of connectivity between the, the global North and the global South, then also having charismatic young, and I think it's important to say female leaders mm-hmm. like uh, Greta. And, you know, you, you look outside of the climate crisis, you look at other like really influential young people like Malala, for instance, and we see yeah. prominent young women kind of taking the stage. And I think that has also generated a lot of excitement and interest.
1: You know, the fact that that activism has been happening, I think its um, yeah. it's important to acknowledge that. Greta has really tapped into the English-speaking media very well. She's very charismatic, very good at communicating English, so that might be partly why English has been kind of a global language that her activism has taken on in a way that the activism of some kind of brilliant activists from the global south hasn't taken on in the same way.
0: And I think, too, there's... Because I do the radical education module here at Cardiff University, which you know, and um, part of those discussions we have about what it means to be radical is, is picking apart this idea of radicalization, which is based on a paper with um, an ex-colleague uh, of ours, Stuart Tannock, um, But they talked about how you, the term radical has been mostly understood through terms of like you know radicalization of of people from a religious sense or from a political sense but really radical means getting to the root of something is the latin root radix but when we look at for instance like protests protests also tend to be kind of negatively construed rather than being an expression of your rights it's more like a disruption of society How do we engage with this idea of protest as something that is a a benefit to society rather than something that is disruptive? Here in Wales, we kind of saw a strange contradiction. And I don't know if it's because some schools were afraid that they would be seen as being something of a radical element or that their children would be participating in something that would be negatively perceived. But we saw some schools who they refused to acknowledge the pupils' rights to protest and would not excuse them from school for the climate crisis. However, like during the Six Nations tournament, some of the schools were releasing pupils for activities associated with the Welsh Welsh rugby team. So it seems to me if we're concerned about pupils missing school for climate strikes. We should be equally concerned about pupils missing school so they could go sing to a sports team or something like that. You yeah. know? So I feel like a lot of head teachers were very supportive and a lot of teachers were supportive. There's, there's a lot of different kinds of pressures that make it difficult for yeah. schools to connect reasons, engagement and, and facilitation of, of protest. But what do you think are some of the reasons why we value young people's engagement with sports and other activities, but not particularly with protest?
1: I think fundamentally, it's because of discomfort with children's agency. I mean, there has been kind of growing student voice movement. And in the um, in Wales, for example, it's compulsory for schools to have school councils. I think there's discomfort when children start exercising their own agency outside of those kind of safe boundaries for participation um, that are established by adults and that are controlled by adults. You know, we saw kind of hysterical headlines about children taking part in these protests there was kind of there was an article by toby young in the spectator um, who was just kind of suggested that they were all truants and said what next what if they decide to protest over to walk out of school and protest for rights at, uh votes at 16 for example and i don't think he realized actually that the climate movement actually is calling for votes at 16 i think that we should be celebrating students engagement with kind of democratic societies i i, I think fundamentally what's really important is like showing dissent in a democracy is a really important part of um, a democratic society and being able to disagree and to show that and everybody has a right to do that so it's something i believe very passionately and i was a I trained as a legal observer so i could take part in the extinction rebellion protests in london uh, in mm. october so i believe very strongly in kind of environmental activism and environmental issues, but I also believe very strongly in the right to protest. And so kind of a recognition that children have the right to protest. Um, and yeah. actually, when you have resistance to the right to protest, those are the groups that you have to be very most careful, really, to ensure that you do facilitate their right to protest, because we're talking about a group of citizens who are being told that they're protesting and that their opinions aren't valuable so actually it's those groups that we really need to make ensure that their voices are heard and not just heard that their um, views are taken into account and that we facilitate them and that we listen to them yeah and a lot of what the youth strike is calling for so they are calling for young children young people to be able to engage in democratic structures for votes 16 and for children young people to have a say uh, kind of a meaningful meaningful opportunities to participate in these decisions and I think yeah like with the climate crisis in particular it's really important that we have democratic participation um, and kind of really meaningful democratic participation that goes beyond the system of representative democracy that we have at the moment Um, so the consequences of the climate crisis for example are likely to disproportionately affect the groups that are currently most vulnerable something that the the UN has been warning about. We need to make sure that the solutions that we propose for the climate crisis don't disproportionately affect any one group. So we need to make sure that everybody is at the table in these discussions and children young people's views historically aren't taken into account. And you can argue that that's why their interests aren't very well or represented in the current a system representative democracy, which is why we have such high levels of uh, child poverty, for example. So it's yeah. really important that we actually do involve children in democratic processes and that we also listen to them and enable them to exercise their right to protest. You know, we should be supporting them to do that rather than um, holding them back and coming up with reasons why they shouldn't be doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And we're lucky in Wales because we have the Child Commissioner for Wales. Yeah. And last month, 16 and 17 year olds were able to secure their right to vote. Clearly, young people are citizens in Wales, you know, and part of our societies and our communities, but they haven't always been acknowledged as thus. And having the right to vote, I think, extends over that gap. Also, in addition to kind of enlarging these democratic processes is trying to get information, accurate information out so that filters down out into communities. What's the point of having the right to vote if you can't make an informed decision with your vote? And so getting that information out is also really, really important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point because all the rights in the convention are interconnected. And as uh, Laura Lundy very powerfully and influentially argued, the right to participation is facilitated by the right to information, uh, the right to guidance from adults, the right to best interests, and the right to non-discrimination. So actually that information, providing information is is really important. So political education is is really fundamental. If we want people to be able to exercise their democratic agency, then we need to make sure that we have good quality information. And I'd say actually that... um, We have kind of really good examples of that in Wales, so that you mentioned the children's commissioner just now. So the children's commissioner for Wales has done some really excellent work in this area. So it was kind of really sophisticated guide, I thought, that really took into account the kind of need for yeah, the other rights to be respected alongside the right to protest and the right to participation. So there's a lot of kind of information about different ways that children could protest and kind of suggestions for times when they might need or want support from adults. There was kind of a section on keeping, uh, keeping safe, but also ways to, to kind of become influential so, I think it's really important um that rather than kind of stifling children's protest that we kind of take these opportunities and we ensure that we're kind of supporting children to do that. It's difficult for schools because it challenges kind of a lot of the fundamental kind of cultures of schooling which uh, which tend to be very hierarchical and I do understand that head teachers a lot of head teachers do have kind of valid concerns about children leaving lessons. But I think the answer to that is kind of thinking about, okay, well, we have a positive responsibility to facilitate children's protest. So how can we ensure that children do this safely? And how can we support them to do that? So that's kind of liaising with local authorities or the police ahead, ahead of a protest to make sure that children can do so safely. So I think Quite often, with it's too easy to just deploy protectionist arguments to prevent children's agency. And actually, we need to think about the ways that we can support them to do it.
0: If if head teachers and teachers are listening to this podcast right now and they're thinking, well, you know, if the, the UNCRC says that schools have the responsibility to acknowledge and facilitate students' rights to protest, then what's my first step? How can I go about ensuring that that happens in my school? What kind of advice would you give them?
1: There's some great resources out there already. I would I would look at the kind of resources that are produced by the Children's Commissioner for Wales, for example. I mean, they are designed in a Welsh context, but they will be applicable to um, schools across the world. The kind of advice that that they give. So yeah, it's working with local authorities, working with the police to make sure that um, children are safe, working with children, young people themselves, and asking them what can we do to support you with this process. So it's not just kind of an oppositional SNU protest. And I think it's about acknowledging as well, the great work that is coming out of the um, climate strikes. So there's kind of an argument from the right in particular by the likes of Tony Young, that children are just looking to kind of get a day off school with the climate strikes. But actually, I mean, if, for example, if you look at the youth climate strike website, and if you've been to strikes, you can see there's information about the green new deal. There's information about global heating. There's information about children's legal rights. So children are learning a lot By participating in these protests and that's something that the climate strikers themselves have argued is that um, actually this is a brilliant learning experience you don't get a much better learning experience than participating in a and organizing in a global movement and all the information and the skills that you develop while doing that which fit very well in with the uh, curriculum for wales for example Mm. in terms of promoting kind of global citizenship but more broadly, there are, um, there are learning skills that are applicable to lots of um, different kind of areas of learning. Um, and I think the kind of protectionist arguments are, are used to shut down children's agency. Um, and there needs to be kind of more of a recognition about how we promote that. Um, and I think listening to the demands of the students themselves, they are calling for educa- for better education on on the climate and ecological emergency they yeah. produce lesson plans, for example, on their website for how to um, improve education in, in that way. So it's not the case that these students are disengaged in education; that they don't want to have conversations with their schools. They have very kind of concrete demands of what their schools can do to support them, and what and they they kind of fundamentally they do want to change the things in their schools. So there are kind of very clear things that schools can do to to listen to them um, by yeah. engaging with the kind of core demands of the movement and then with individual um, children within their schools about what's the best way of, of kind of um, embedding that within local school curriculums as well.
0: It it provides opportunities for educators and community members and even other, you know, the, the way that young people regard each other as as seeing them as multifaceted that not they're not just pupils they're not just learners mm. they're also citizens they they can be activists they're individuals they they are learners and you know sometimes with the culture around assessment and the culture around achievement and and those kinds of things maybe we focus a little too narrowly on outcomes sometimes yeah. and not about what we can learn through processes outside of examinations and GCSE results and those kinds of things, you know, yeah, and how beneficial these experiences can be on a much more holistic sense.
1: No, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think that's something that, yeah, that as I said, the climate strikers themselves have argued um, and the evidence is there if we look at the activities that they've um, been been engaged in, um, it's really clear that it's a really important Kind of learning experience but that also it's kind of valuable in and of itself mm. and that it kind of presents children with a different way of engaging with other children not just as kind of fellow learners but as actual as activists and kind of making kind of important social bonds so another piece of work that children's commissioner um, has done in the past professor emil reynolds at cardiff university in collaboration with groups of young people has been uh, resources aimed at facilitating children's activism on gender-based and sexual Violence and harassment. That's re- that's led to kind of a redesigning of the curriculum, uh, Saxon relationships in Wales. So it really shows how, and when you facilitate children's activism and engage with it positively, that it can lead to positive change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a real concrete change that we can see and that affects people's lives for the better. I think that's that's really important to oh. highlight. Well, Rian this has been a, a, a great conversation and I, I appreciate you being on the, the podcast today. Is there anything that you would like to say to the listeners before we wrap up? There's
1: been a lot of um, discourse around children's participation in the youth strikes has been really disruptive to their education and kind of a lot of kind of fear around kind of children kind of standing up and kind of being disruptive. I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of the kind of major historical movements have been really disruptive and a lot of the same Criticisms that are levelled against the youth climate strikers were also levelled against the suffragettes, against the civil rights movements in the US. And it's actually those kind of movements where people do stand up and challenge the social the status quo that we really do get transformative uh, movements. And I think that the youth climate strike movement really is is doing that and is making people stand up and listen and think about the kind of responsibility to future generations yeah. um, in terms of their actions as well as what we can do to, to support children in the here and now it's really important that we can support children advocating on the climate crisis because the climate crisis and the ecological crisis they are children's rights issues so it's particularly mm. important that we support children when they're advocating for their own rights partly because they most importantly because they have a right to protest and we need to we have a duty to as well governments have a duty to stand up and listen um but also when people are advocating for their own rights it's it's particularly important i think that we um support them in doing so
0: and i think too it's it's easy to to look at the climate crisis and Ecological collapse and and Black Lives Matter and all these things that are happening in the world and kind of wring our hands and think, oh, you know, what a horrible situation we found ourselves in. But at the same time, if we look at protests as a positive change yeah. and say, you know, yeah, there are really we're in a tough spot right now, but at least, you know, we can pull together, express our rights, work for change. And it's that moment that when we can really infuse the kind of work and our attitude towards and, and perception of the world in a very positive way in believing in real hope that leads to concrete action that hopefully produces the the outcomes that we want it really is kind of a a turning point and 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 i think if we embrace that in a very positive sense and and try to work for solidarity and and allyship with those, particularly marginalized people, and 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 yeah. I include young people in that group in a lot of ways because they can be discounted as just not being complete individuals or people <laughs> with rights. Absolutely, bizarre. Um, but I think if we can infuse this right now with with positivity and and then acknowledge that this is a, actually a, could be a, a turn in the right direction that we can make really positive change because of this, of these decisions of these young people. That That's something we should celebrate.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I'd like to wrap up today's podcast by thanking our guest, Dr. Hryam Barents from Cardiff University, Diocha Valryin, uh, for joining us and talking to us about young people's rights to protest, and particularly as that applies to our climate crisis.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a really interesting discussion.
0: I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today, and we hope you tune in again to the next episode of The Beer Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Beera podcast. You can read the Beera blog at www.beera.ac.uk forward slash blog.